Welcome back to The Mix with Matt and Dan. Hey guys, uh, thanks for coming back for the third episode uh, of me interviewing my father, Rusty Bruchet. How are you today, Dad? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Awesome. So last time we ended up, I'm going to dive straight in. I don't think we need a summary. I think people are going to be so addicted to these that they're, <laughs> just, they're just running them one after the other. Um, so you were on tour with Led Zeppelin. That's and, right. And you were mixing their shows, and we were in the, in the early 70s at this point. That's right. And then, you know, why don't you kind of tell me what was going on around that? I mean, we were clearly flying to Australia and, and fixing Jimmy Page's guitar. Right. And doing some really cool kind of life, life memories. That's right. And then what else? Well, I was also a tour, uh, sound engineer for James Taylor, and I did the James Taylor, Carol King tour where she had uh, just introduced the album Tapestry and was doing songs from that album. And that was a really successful tour. Do you remember how you picked that tour up, or was it just because um, you were... We got it um, through a contact in New York, uh, a guy named Nat Weiss, who was uh, involved with James's management, knew, uh, had heard of us through somewhere, I'm not sure where, maybe through Zeppelin, mm -hmm. because Zeppelin's management was also in New York. And uh, we got called for it, and I went out and did that tour, and that was really a an enjoyable tour because James was, was and is such a great musician and always had a great band and it was always such good music. Yeah. And it was sort of a completely different type of music than Zeppelin. And the way that the tours inter, inter, uh, were scheduled in those early years, I would kind of go from a Zeppelin tour and then I'd do a James tour and then I'd go back and do a, James, a Zeppelin tour again. So it was kind of a... Uh, kind of a, a range of different types of music there. So is it safe to say that the same sound system that Led Zeppelin used, James Taylor also used? Yes, and that was the great thing about Shoko. We were basically a rental business. Our equipment, we made and built it ourselves, and then we rented it to our customers along with a crew. So it was a full-service rental. And the great thing about sound equipment is it's versatile, and it's sort of a black box rental business where once you get it up and where it really works well, you can use it for any type of artist. And so it makes it a very efficient way to, from a business perspective, it's an efficient system where you can make a reasonable profit doing it. Yeah. So, I mean, what I do know about, um, you know, going out and, and doing anything with 10, 20, 30, 100,000 people is that it's exciting. Right? I mean, even if you're selling hot dogs at the show, it's an exciting moment to be selling the hot dogs to that many people. It is. An, it is. That's right. Yeah. And it was an exciting time also because it was the beginning of the counterculture and it was, uh, you know, everybody was uh, in a kind of a, a hippie frame of mind at that time. And, as we, yeah. and it, from, from my perspective, I had never really traveled as a kid. So when I started the company, I really had never been out of Texas except maybe to go to Arkansas once or twice or something like that. So the first year that we had the company, you know, I was in every state in the union. I went to Hawaii five times. I went to Japan twice, Australia, and I went to Europe twice. So it was right. quite an education for someone that had not had a, a, a lot of travel experience. Do you remember when it became a grind? 
Uh, well, you know, the, the tours were hard because it just physically it was difficult. Because in those days we drove our own trucks and we set up equipment ourselves. You know, we had stagehands helping us at the venue, but, you know, we would start at 8 o'clock in the morning and we wouldn't finish up until 1 or 2 in the morning and then we would be driving to the next show. So in that sense it was a grind, but it was... It, it was it was exciting doing the shows, mm-hmm. and it was exciting being in the venues and seeing the different crowds in the different parts of the country. Yeah, so you and the other founders were on the road. You guys were... Out of the three of us, uh, Jack Maxson and myself were on the road. Yeah. The third guy, Jack Cummings, was uh, in charge of marketing and sales and that sort of thing, and he was in the office. Got it. And so you were out there learning the lessons of the road. You were, we were. understanding what plugs needed to be, which direction. I right. think we spoke about that. And, and there's just an enormous amount of innovation at That's that right. stage of a market developing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think there's still uh, the windows get smaller, right, as the yeah. market matures. But there's still innovation when you're looking at the problem. Absolutely. And it keeps going on. And sound has continued to evolve and has changed dramatically since the 70s, right. you know. Yeah, but it, it typically evolves from the people participating in it, right? It does. There's been, um, in sound, I think the two big changes since the 70s is the move to digital, which has involved a lot of technology from a lot of different places in order to make digital consoles and things. And then, of course, the, the speaker arrays have changed. Mm-hmm. And what's now used is called a line array, which originated out of a a, a man in France who came up with the concept and it's pretty much taken over as far as the preferred design of, of a sound system now. The line arrays are incredibly efficient at sending large amounts of volume over a long distance. Yeah, in a, in a very coherent way. Right. Um, the challenge in sound in large venues like arenas is that um, the venues are not designed acoustically to uh, for sounds, there you know they weren't that wasn't a consideration when a hockey arena was designed. Mm-hmm. So the, 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 it's a very reverberant uh, environment, and when you have a sound system, the early types of sound systems that we had sort of put out audio in all directions, including up and down, up in the ceiling and down, and so we ended up exciting the room. You know, as we turned the sound systems up louder and louder. We were putting energy everywhere in the halls, and so we would we would end up being fighting ourselves because we were we were creating so much reverberant sound or ambient sound that we really couldn't get the direct sound we were looking for. Mm-hmm. So the big breakthrough in line array technology was it takes the audio signals and it focuses them sort of like a flashlight. Mm-hmm. onto the crowd and keeps the sound out of how, the how ceiling it, and all that. I mean, doesn't a horn do that? Like with the horn, the physical shape of a horn? It like does, but uh, in order to, you know, when you, the perfect sound source is just a single source. And when you have large sound systems with lots of different sources, which you have to have to get them loud enough, because there's no perfect single source that's loud enough that could do, do the job. You're and saying like a source being like a single amplifier? A, yeah, a single amplifier, right. a single, single speaker. So you end up with all these different sources, and then you get all this cancellation and all this interference from all the different waveforms that are being created by all the different sources. So the line array 
technology went a long way to creating coherent sound that was very directional and controllable over a large number of transducers and our speakers. Yeah, so it was really a big breakthrough. So that took quite a while to come out, right? That, we're talking yeah, that, like in the 90s? Yeah, or, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. So you were still kind of grinding through, yeah. exciting the room. Like nobody really cared all that much. I mean, well, we, we worked on it, and we got better and better at those type of systems. And, and, and we produced some great sound, don't get me wrong. It yeah. was just, um, it was always an issue. It was analog. Room acoustic. It was <laughs> yeah. analog, and some yeah. some halls sounded better than other halls, you know. Right. And, and I remember the Forum in L.A. was a great-sounding hall. There was an arena up in Vancouver, British Columbia, that sounded fantastic every time I went there. It was right. always great sound for some reason. And so, you know, in other, in other arenas were notorious for a difficult night, like the Boston uh, arena was always difficult because it always had a real reverberant sound field, so it was always hard to keep your mix in, intact. But uh, it, was, it was, you know, we, we just, it was good for the day, and we, right. we did a good job. Yeah, so you were out on the road doing a couple of tours here and there, kind of going back and forth. And during that time, I guess we're in the 70s now, right? right? So that was kind of all all roses. Everything was going really great. You had, it, it mean, was, you were it, successful. It was clearly success. Like you we were, were having success, and it was it was challenging. We had, well, the company was growing rapidly, so we had the challenges of how we were going to get 10 sound crews trained and be able to go out and do, you know, once Max and I, had our two systems in order to grow we had to have people that could go out and where we weren't there right so we had to train people and we had to get people that could keep the equipment running so you had to, you know, it wasn't just a sound mixer you needed you needed a technician someone that understood electronics and all that in order to skilled, to fix it as we labor. went yeah St yeah still labor and then you had to somebody that was excited about going on the road and driving yeah. a truck and yeah and would work 22 hours a day yeah. and then hop in the car and then make yeah. it to the next gig before yeah exactly before so the whole thing we we when we we ran ads in the paper for people and we typically started recruiting people with a technical background yeah. we were looking for technicians or engineers or people with electronics background and then we would teach them how to mix and the mm -hmm. sound side but we we needed that core electronic uh, knowledge so that they could fix the stuff and keep it working because you just couldn't have the sound systems fail. You know that you think was that the one thing. Think that skill set still required? Um, I, th I still think to be a really good sound engineer, you have to have some good technical knowledge of your equipment. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if, know if you necessarily have to be able to fix an amplifier on a workbench and go into the circuits and all that, but you need to be able to troubleshoot down to know that an amplifier is bad and needs to be replaced, that sort of thing. Doesn't hurt to know how to change a fuse or two. Yeah, that's right. right. You need to know where the fuse box is, that's yeah, for sure. I got it. Have some extras. So. <laughs> yeah, have an yeah. extra, know where they are. And so you had a, a lot of success, and um, were, you, were you growing, were you just like laser focused, like we want to have 100 sound systems with 100 employees, or was it um, a little messier than that? Well, we were limited by capital. You know, it cost a lot of money to build a sound system. And we were constantly rebuilding the sound systems all the time. So once we got up to eight or ten of them, then it was a big job. Just as we made innovations, we had to roll those innovations through all ten systems. So they end up being a big shop load of 
figuring out how to, you know, get the gear rebuilt and reworked and designed in the first place. And, you know, it took it took the full 10 years of the 70s just to progress through the technology and keep uh, working until we got a system that we thought, you know, really worked well. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it took a lot of work also just in the evolution of, of things because the monitor systems, the stage monitor systems became a big deal because they, they, each artist ended up wanting their own monitor mix. So you ended up having to build stage monitor mixing consoles that could mix eight or 10 or 16 separate mixes all at the same time. Right. And you had to have a monitor engineer on stage that was monitoring and mixing all of those mixes for each artist and dealing with what they wanted and what they didn't want. And so the monitor engineer became a really big position in the company. Mm-hmm. And it was a critical one because if the, if the client wasn't happy with the monitors, they, you know, yeah, so you like the go, old joke, if mama ain't happy, nobody's happy. Right. If they're not happy with the monitors, they ain't happy with anything. So. Right, right. So you would go backstage and you'd have hundreds and hundreds of boxes, and these boxes would be monitor boxes, right? I mean, you'd have boxes, and uh, you'd have to, yeah, we had individual monitors for each guy, and they were small. They were typically floor monitors. They were slanted boxes that would go on stage, and you'd put two or three or four of them around yeah. each performer based and then on you how had much to power they wanted. Those. Had to have power, right? And then you had to feed uh, whatever mix that individual wanted into that particular set of boxes. Okay. And you had to, so you had to have you know all the same equipment that you had out in the front for the main mix, as far as equalizers and limiters and yeah. noise gates and all that stuff. You had to have them in the monitors too. So you yes. ended up with a lot of equipment up there. Didn't you tell me at a time like you had you know when you bought that home mixer, right? Like the one that, that had sixteen channels that you were doing right. for like some a garage band thing you wanted to do. Right. That that had more you paid two thousand dollars for it and that that had more technology in it from a monitoring point of view than the three hundred thousand dollars you would spend back yes. in the back in the seventies. That's correct. Yeah. The the current day digital mixers have more have more capability and have more things in them than than we would ever have had in so the So you 70s. were at the cusp of innovating this kind of field, this like ambiguous, just this way you use the tech. It's You right. don't really buy monitoring packages, right? I mean, like no. it's just something that's part of the tech now, but it was really an important part of the innovation of the company. It was, absolutely. And, and all that stuff had to be created, and right. we had to build it ourselves because right. there wasn't any place to go buy the stuff. It, there weren't any companies in business at that time that built that sort of thing, so... We ended up with a fairly significant investment in engineering personnel and it, a small, you know, shop manufacturing operation to build it all. And did this get innovated because of failure? Like, was it because people were unhappy with the monitoring? That, yeah. Right. And so they would complain. Yeah. You'd have to fix the complaint. Yeah. And then you'd come back. And, you know, the big, the big breakthrough in monitors was in-ear monitors because when you have speakers everywhere – you know, you have feedback because if you have a speaker close to a microphone, it'll feed back. So one of the big challenges with monitor systems was just controlling feedback. And um, also it was difficult because for the artist to be singing, you know, they were basically listening to these speakers pointed at them. And it, it was hard to ever get the monitors loud enough, you know, and get the right level and balance between the stage sound and the 
Because, you know, singers have to be able to hear themselves to sing. If you can't hear yourself sing, you can't sing on pitch. Right. So for a singer, being able to have good monitors is absolutely critical. Yeah. So some I don't know who came up with in-ear, in-ear monitors, but basically it's basically little speakers that actually go inside your ear, mm-hmm. you know, like a, like a hearing aid. And they, over the years they worked on the, the, the safety systems for it so they didn't get too loud or feedback or blow your eardrums out. But everybody now uses in-ear monitors, and they're fantastic because they sound great. You can get them any level you want. You can mix whatever you want to into you, you them. You still see them and feedback occasionally, thing. though. You know, like, have you ever seen, like, when they're on stage now, they just yeah. rip out the ear monitor? Well, and, a lot of times if, they're not, if, the, if the monitor engineer is still a monitor engineer <laughs> mixing that, you know. Right. And if he doesn't get it right or if there's some – and they're all wireless – Mm-hmm. You know, they all have a belt pack on. That, so a lot of times when they rip them out of their ear, they, they're getting the local uh, police department, you know, oh, broadcast right. <laughs> or something. Okay, a little, yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. a little uh, breaker, so, breaker going on, you know. Yeah, so um, we're going to take a break for a minute, and then we're going to come back. But I, I do want to talk about, um, you know, during the 70s, before we get out of the 70s, and we're going to get into some really exciting stuff when you hit 1980. I think I think this thing really goes up a whole nother level, Right. You go from cool okay. to, to being amazing. Right. Um, but there's some things I want to talk about in the 70s still in regards to some of the products you built. Right. I think you innovated uh, a mixing console. I think you innovated some right. other things that we are definitely going to talk about. Um, some good and bad decisions and kind of how that springboarded you into your next innovation. Okay. Sounds good. Welcome back to The Mix with Matt and Dan. We are talking to Rusty Bruchet. Uh, We were leaving off, um, headed back into the 70s here. So you were on the road with Led Zeppelin, James Taylor, mixing sound. Um, This was early 70s. Um, Even though you did mix sound for Led Zeppelin all the way through 78 to 80? 81, till till 1980. Till 1980, that was your core account where you went out on the road with those guys. Um, You started transitioning into product development, so you were in, what, 1974? What did you come out with? Well, in 1974, we we needed a soundboard because at the time, up until that point, we'd been using individual six-input mixers mounted in a vertical you know, vertical equipment rack. So what that means is it'd just be a rack of stuff like on a shelf. Well, it'd be like a rack, over... like, you know, like a, like a equipment rack, a computer, like a server rack. Yeah, but not ergonomic, as I right. think what people That's right. Think. It was not yet. Just... But you still had to mix it in live, right? You had to mix it live, but you sat in front of it and looked over it, you know? Right. And it wasn't, it was just, it wasn't what you needed. You needed more of a recording studio board where the board was horizontal in front of you and had, sliders for the volume controls and but it needed to be portable you know there and there wasn't anything really available you could buy so we had to end up making our own okay and uh, so Jim Bornhorst who had been hired um, 
to be a sound engineer on the road and who had been on the road for several years, mixing Alice Cooper and some other acts, um, I asked him to come in off the road and because he had an electrical engineering degree from Texas A&M, and I asked him to um, work with us to build this soundboard. Mm -hmm. And he had some ideas uh, about um, how to make an equalizer system that at the time was quite revolutionary. It was called parametric equalization, and it was going to use some new op amps, operational amplifiers, which are ICs from Texas Instruments that had just come out, and he thought he could design and come up with a circuit that would vary, to give you variable control over frequency and the width of the boost and cut at a particular frequency. Whereas all prior boards and all boards, uh, recording studio boards and stuff at that time had fixed controls. You had maybe two or three or four selections of frequency you could choose and you couldn't vary the width of the booster cut curve, you just had to select what was ever, had to take what was ever in the board. So being able to have that variable control over EQ was a big deal. Yeah. And so we built a board, it was a 30 input um, quadraphonic board, ironically enough, had four outputs with quadraphonic panning controls on it. And um, it was, um, each input had a three band parametric EQ for lows, low, mids, highs yeah so and, all of that makes total sense to an engineer yeah but if you're not an engineer and yeah. you happen to be still listening to this yeah what does that really mean like what does that give you like why is that it just gives is that you better it allows you? it allows you to get a lot better sound right so it's in like an order of magnitude yeah like i would say so it just gave you a tremendous control over each microphone in the sense of it being crisper so you could hear you could make it crisper you could make it you could tailor the sound a particular way, particularly on drums. You could really tune the drums to get them to sound and, the way you wanted to. Did this take the sound engineer from, you had mentioned before, you had primarily hired guys that were engineers and you taught them to do sound. Yeah. Did this kind of take the sound guy who was mixing live shows, did it kind of swing the pendulum back the other way where you really needed people who had the capacity to hear the sound? Well, I think... You know, it was it was a tool that it just uh, up until that point, you know, we had we had never even had individual EQ on each microphone. We on the six input mixers we'd been using previously, we just had <clears throat> excuse me bass and treble control for the whole mixer. So, you know, it, it uh, to be able to go all of a sudden and have all this control over every microphone was a a really big a big deal, but. The people that we already had were able to adapt and, and move on. They, they kept improving also. And so this was just a, a major tool right. that everybody used uh, to help. And it really was a big part of Shoko's success throughout the 70s was having this board, which we named the Super Board. Okay. And it lasted for 10 years, and we built 10 of them. And they were, it was a great resource. And when did people copy you on this board? Uh, fairly soon. I mean, there were other boards that were starting to come in the market in the late 70s, uh, individual people, uh, some companies in England and some people on the West Coast. Yeah. But um, And our main competitor, Claire Brothers, had developed their board or did develop a board of their own. So there were other competitors, but we always had a, you know, it just gave us a real solid position in the market. And it was a long time before 
competition surpassed what we had. Right. So you were touring, building products, pushing products. You clearly were building a reputation for your capacity to set up the gig and, right. and put on the show and, and tear it down and move it on. Right. And then you had this super board, which really elevated you guys because everybody did. saw it and then they heard it and then they could yeah. tell. And even the mic checks would be delivering that value to your customer, right? right? Um, dialing it in and making it work. Um, is that what you solely stayed focused on or were you headed other directions? Well, as the 70s evolved, we were also doing lighting and we were doing a lot of innovations in lighting. Um, and lighting was, was growing more rapidly in some ways than the sound side of the business because the lighting rigs kept getting bigger and bigger. And we were using uh, the park hands, but each, uh, that was basically a, a thousand watt tungsten bulb in a cylindrical can with a piece of gel in front of it. Right. And the advantage of it was it was cheap as far as it only cost 20 or $30 for a park hand. And then you had to have a dimmer to, to control it. And then you had to have a light board to turn it on and off. And we were using some commercial dimmers and boards out of uh, California originally, made by a company called Colortran. And they were 2,000-watt uh, dimmers, so we had to put two park hands on one dimmer. Yeah. And we were using individual pieces of wire for each park hand, 12-3 wire for each one. So we ended up with huge bundles of cable that were going up into these rigs because it the lighting rigs grew to over, you know, 2,000 lights uh, up in the rigs, 2,000 park hands. So we ended up with huge cable bundles that required chain motors just to pick up the wire, much less the lighting system itself. So it was kind of a crude system at the time, truthfully. It was uh, it was cumbersome, you know. Yeah. And, uh, but at the, at this, at, towards the end of the 70s, we also started branching out into other businesses. We bought a fleet of trucks, 20 semis that we were going to run, and we ran a trucking operation that we sold to our clients to haul all this equipment around. We also went into the manufacturing business to build discotheque equipment because the discotheque market opened up towards the end of the 70s, and we were building mixers for DJs and uh, speakers and so forth. We were selling those. We weren't renting. And then we uh, and we also designed a line of home hi-fi speakers also in that operation. And then we had a company that was in the installation business where we were installing sound systems and facilities. And uh, we dabbled in, tr in set building and outdoor structures. So we kind of allowed, we got our eye off the ball, I would say. We kind of went into too many different Directions. Yeah, but, so, I mean, that's an interesting thing. I mean, all of those businesses were aligned with what you were doing. They were. Right? So, I mean, it would be very difficult to tell, like, why focus? I mean, how do you know that lighting wasn't going to stop or that right. sound wasn't going to level off? Or, right. Like, how did you, I mean, how well, would you have made know. that? Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't have, right? No, but I think, you know, we, we didn't have the resources financially to do all those things, and it stretched us thin. And where it really showed up was in the lighting side because there were some companies in England who, who made some big innovations in park hand lighting, and that was they used 
six conductor cables for connecting six lights to a dimmer rack that was designed for having one dimmer per par. So that it was a rack, a 72 channel dimming rack, and each channel was a thousand watts. Yeah. And so it made the Parkin lighting rigs much, much more efficient. The cable bundles were one sixth as heavy. Um, having the individual dimmers for each light made it much more versatile from a yeah. control perspective. And so we got obsolete. Our equipment became obsolete. And, and maybe um, a more layman's way of looking at this is you, you don't need a trucking company if people aren't renting your lights, right? Right. And you don't need a manufacturing business if nobody wants your gear. Right. And so if you're not focused on the thing that people are coming to you for, right. you're going to get into trouble. That's right. Right. And That's right. Do you, I mean, this is a big problem with a lot of entrepreneurs. Right. This is not, I mean, this is, this was not unique to Shoko Very Light. Right. right. That's true. And it's just a lesson, you know, you get tempted. And you also think because you're good at one thing, you can be good at another. Yeah, that's... And, and yeah. maybe you can, but, you know, you have to have the same amount of energy that you put into the first thing to put into the second thing. You know, you, you, it's be, just because you know a little bit more doesn't mean it takes any less yep. amount of energy. But, like, what fortune cookie wisdom would you have gotten back then that would have allowed you to stay focused on the thing that matters? Like, how do you discern? Because I don't think of that as, like, a bad choice. I think of that as just a yeah. hard signal to pull out of all these other signals. Yeah. I think um, I think what we did was a bit extreme. Um, in the case of the trucking operation, we made a, a real fundamental mistake of analysis because in order, because of the cost of trucks and because, because of the structure of a trucking operation, trucks have to run 90% of the time to be profitable. They have to, they have to have a high utilization. They can't sit around. Well, our strategy was we were only renting trucks to the people that were renting our other equipment. We weren't renting trucks to just anybody. So we didn't, we, we limited our market to our customer base. Well, the utilization rate on all of our equipment was about 60, 65%. Right. So we immediately were in a lost situation because we couldn't run the trucks enough on our own, using our own uh, customer base. And as a result, it was a huge money losing operation. It really sucked a lot of cash out of us that we, at a time when we didn't have the cash to, to lose so we ended up shutting that down and selling the trucks off and uh, we didn't we, we didn't go back into that business uh, as far as the, the manufacturing operation it was just a completely different business in a different market and it was just away from what our core business was so it wasn't ad additive it didn't bring any new insights or anything to the, the rental operation it was sort of a separate thing and it required its own set of marketing and markets and customers and it was just a diversion you know it was it was in hindsight it just it, it looked what looked like a good idea at the time just turned out not to be so good right in the other side the manu the installation business that turned out to be difficult because it had a completely different business model than we were used to. We were used to a rental operation where our customers really cared about what we did and cared about the quality of what we did. And 
paid us for having as good a quality as we could have in the installation market is completely different. You've got right. six layers of people between you and the customer. You never even know who the customer is. You're working for a, a contractor who's a contractor, you know, sub, you know, you three or four layers of subs, and all they care about is the cheapest price. Right. They don't care about any quality or anything. So it, it, it just wasn't our cup of tea. So we didn't, we shut that down too. So we basically tried a lot of things and didn't really succeed and had to retrench. And the, the biggest penalty we paid was we got our lighting equipment was out of, out of sync with the market. Right. What I call behind the power curve, and, which means that our equipment was not competitive with our competitors. And so we had a hard time getting the work. And without getting the revenues and the profits, we couldn't reinvest to upgrade the equipment. And in a rental operation, that's, that can be a death spiral if you don't have a capital to inject to recover from the mistake. Because in a normal rental operation, you always reinvest a percentage of your profits each year back into the gear to keep it constantly being upgraded and improved. Right. And you can't stop doing that. You always have to stay up and ahead of the market and innovate. Yeah, a rental gear is like if you're not improving it, it's gonna you're dead. Yeah, right. You got to keep working it. And it'll be quick. And you got to keep it in good shape too. It's got to look good, and you know you can't show up with junky looking stuff. Yeah. So, um, so great. So you you did a lot of you had a lot of success. Yeah. The success covered up a lot of sins. Yeah. Right. And. Yeah. Um, it was still an exciting time. It was. And uh, it and was. We headed... were doing really big shows, even with lights. I mean, we were doing, you know, the Rolling Stones and the Bee Gees tour, the, their big tour, the uh, Saturday Night Live album tour in 1979. Uh, we were doing this, uh, The Who, and we were doing David Bowie and Genesis. So we, we had a lot of really big artists that we were doing full sound and lighting production for. But uh, we were. We were, we were reaching the limit of Parkhand technology because we just couldn't hang any more lights. There wasn't enough space. Right. And so something was, had to change. Something had to change. Yeah. All right. Well, when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit about what had to change and how you guys approached that solution. Uh, this is The Mix with Matt and Dan, and we're going to talk uh, about those things after you listen to my daughter play the guitar. back to the mix with Matt and Dan. So you were in the 70s, you had a lot of success uh, with really the touring industry. You were spreading that money around, going right. out, chasing revenues, That's chasing right. opportunity, trying to grow a, a gigantic monster. That's right. Um, one of the parallels to this opportunity of like going into these other businesses were from what 1970 to 1980, you, the the industry was in massive growth mode. It was. It was kind of straight up. It just got bigger and better every year. And you were at the tip of that, and you yeah. were best reputation, best company, best technology, whatever it was. Right. Uh, they wanted you, and you were growing with the market. We were. Yeah. 
And then uh, when we went into the, all the other businesses, that drained our resources. And then we had the first recession in the touring industry that we had experienced in 1980. For some reason, the, the, the market kind of fell off and uh, there weren't as many tours. And MTV came on the scene and all of a sudden there was a lot of uncertainty about the impact that music videos would have on live performance and whether or not concerts might become obsolete or not as popular because you could see the same thing on TV for free. Were the bands that were really popular in the 70s also falling out of favor? Because, like, I mean, obviously hip-hop was coming on and you had some other genres kind of hitting the market? Well, disco peaked in 1980 and there was you know a lot of people remember the disco is dead yeah movement. like overnight oh, like overnight, disco yeah. died overnight yeah yeah and so it died right at the time the industry sort of slumped and right at the time mtv came on the scene okay and so you had a lot of different types of music emerge from that like punk you know, and, and all that type of stuff sort of happened in the early 80s. So you weren't protected enough for the collateral damage of maybe an unexpected tidal wave coming in and hitting you like MTV, and then you'd kind of taken right. all of those profits, really, and just not right. necessarily leverage them in the right way. That is correct. Which is kind of a lesson that maybe even Apple and these other tech conglomerates have learned where they're just holding on to massive amounts of cash. That's right. Right? Because they just, you know, their goal is not Yeah, survival. and that, that it, it's, uh, you know, it's like everything. When, if you, when you leverage yourself up and borrow too much money or if you spend too much money or you in, invest in something new and the market goes against you, you, you that's when most companies go broke. Is that, uh, you, you know, you're always, all your projections and all your thinking about what you're doing is all based on everything being okay and you don't really factor in what happens when you have a downturn where your revenues go to half of what you thought they were going to be. So, you know, it's just a, a good lesson that to always try to keep some reserve and to be prudent about how you run your business so that you have some something set aside for a rainy day because the rainy days come. They, they come pretty, you can always bet they're going to show up at certain intervals, you know, you just don't know when they're going to be. Right. But if you look back on all the financial crises and stuff we've had, they've always come every, you know, 10 years or so. Yeah. And so that much success, everybody's famous inside your company as yeah. far as just a, just social network, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, you're getting a lot of kudos. You're having a really good time going to shows and setting them up and traveling the world and seeing these things. But internally, just being part of that must have been quite exciting. It was. Yeah. It and, was. And so you go, you do that, but I'm sure that the downturn can be stressful. It was very stressful, and the fact that we, uh, we, we, we had financial problems, and that caused problems with our banks and our lenders. And uh, so it caused uh, kind of an upheaval in management, and we had a, a change in management. Uh, Jack Calmes left, and a, another man bought him out, a yeah. man named Jim Clark. And I took over as president of the company in 1980. And so we had kind of a upheaval that was caused from the financial stresses of the overextension in the businesses combined with the downturn in the, in the market. It's a little bit of a, a, little bit of a change. It was you. a big change. Yeah, it was right. kind of a watershed thing. Yeah, going from a hippie, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, that's when you see pictures of yourself yeah. when, you know, as a younger guy, you were, you were in the hippie movement, if I may say so. <laughs> Right, I, I was, but I, I was sort of a an imposter. 
yeah. I, never, I never fully embraced the full oh, ethos of it all. Well, you had the image. We'll just say that. It was, the image was sufficiently well, captured anybody on could film. grow long hair, you know, and that yeah, was the key. Yeah, there you go. Uh, not a hard one to live up to. It's not like you had right. to dress in a tuxedo every day and keep right. it crisp. Uh, but you, you had the image, and then, you know, then you turned into a... Uh, a, a white collar kind of. Well, I had short. to all of a sudden start worrying about when things when all when things started getting difficult money wise. I started getting really interested in accounting, <laughs> right. so I spent quite a lot of time in the accounting department. Even though my background is engineering, uh, I didn't really have a business background. Uh, when this happened, it took me back to my SMU days when I was sitting there as a freshman. And the guy was telling all of us that none of us, most of us were not going to be engineers. And I was thinking that all those losers were going to have to go to business school. I was thinking, boy, was I wrong about that. I wish I'd gone to business school, you know. Right. Because I had to teach myself accounting and business and money and all that. And so that's what I did. I dived in and started tracking our money and tried to figure out, you know, what we were going to do to kind of get things under control. Right, and getting comfortable with just the way that money moves through right. a business. And I just started tracking it in my own way. I just started tracking all the incoming money and all the outcoming money. and Cash and basis of Cash basis, just cash. Cash in, well, cash Because out. what I found was, you know, the financial statements were great and they could show you could you were making a profit, but that didn't mean you had money in the bank. Because if the financial statements don't show where you're spending the money, if you're spending it on capital equipment and other things, investment in other businesses and stuff like that, you can be showing a profit and be broke, you know, if you're not taking right. care of the cash. So I learned quickly that cash is everything. So I, I ran the company on a big uh, detailed cash flow plan that I developed where I would project how much cash was coming in and how much cash we were having to pay out. And, right. and, that, and that was how was, I turned it around. Yeah, and so that attention to detail, focusing yeah. on the money, yeah. getting really aligned with what was costing money. Were yeah. you going in and running audits on yeah. how many screws you were buying to put the lights together? Or I was many? really breaking it down and looking at it by division. That you know, because we had we had rolled all the numbers for the trucking operation into the main numbers for the company, and we couldn't tell uh, what the trucks were doing individually or independently as an as an operation. So one of the first things I did was break all those numbers out. And that's when I realized how much money we were losing in trucking. Right. And then we immediately got rid of the truck. So you get, you, you take the role, you got a presidency role, you do yeah. a little accounting that you'd never done before. And right. how long until you make your first major decision? Is it 30 days? Is it six hours? Um, it's, um, it's really fast. Yeah. Um, it's really a, it, fast. Cause it was time. It, like it was burning. Yeah. And, um, we were in default on our uh, loan agreements with the banks, and um, they had the right un under those agreements to come in and take control of the board if they wanted to. So it was sort of a, you know, a tense situation where you're, uh, when you're in default with a, with a bank loan, that's a really serious matter. Yeah. And so uh, you have to really convince the bank that you know what you're doing and that you're going to get it fixed because they don't really want to come in and take it over. But if they think that you don't know what you're doing, they will come in and take it over. Right. And that was my, you know, I didn't want to be out of a job, you know, and, and I didn't want to have the, the, the bank come in and take the company away from us. So it was a, an intense time. So I took the 
the numbers and I looked at everything and I broke all the various parts of the company apart. And the biggest decision that I made was when I looked at the lighting department, um, it wasn't making any money because we were obsolete. We weren't getting the, the, the same level of business that we were getting. Right. And um, it was paying some overhead. So it was paying a share of the overhead, but it wasn't generating any profits. And it was going to require a huge uh, investment in order to re-equip and get competitive with the market. Right. And so I decided I was going to shut it down and get out of the lighting business, which was a, a massive decision. Mm-hmm. And um, I went ahead and made that decision. Uh, and that was in September of uh, when When you did that, I mean, were you consulting with your board and were you consulting with your other guys or was this? Yeah, I mean, at that time, the... The board was basically the three partners, Jim Clark and Jack Maxson and myself. Yeah. And I, I just presented the numbers and told them that's what I thought we should do. And um, So people were going to lose their jobs. You were going to have little layoffs. Yeah. You were going to yeah. have to fire it, sales it, it, it and was, equipment. Uh, in retrospect, I don't know if it was necessarily, you know, well, I think it was the right decision because of what happened. Right. And, yeah, I mean, it has to be. Yeah. You're sitting here a success. So yeah. whatever decision you made was yeah. the right decision. But it, it was the hardest, probably the hardest decision I had to make. Yeah. I mean, was that the first time you guys had any round of layoffs? Uh, no, we'd had ups and downs, you know, ups, yeah. but nothing like that where we had a whole group. But um, part of my, uh, you know, it, uh, right about that time, you know, because of the problem with having so many lights, park hands above the stage, you know, where we couldn't hang anymore. Because, you know, a stage is only a certain square footage underneath, right? It's right. like 60 by 40 or yeah. 60 by 60 or whatever. So there's only so much area you got to put hang lights, you know. You're, you can't hang lights Over at the, the other end of the arena, you know. Yeah. So if you calculate it out i mean if each each park hand took a square foot i mean there's only so many you can get up there and uh so we decided you know that if we could make the lights change color it could make things a lot better because at that time if you wanted red lights you had to put up 20 or 30 park hands with red gels and when it came time for red lights you had to turn those lights on and then when it was time for red lights to go off, you turn them off. And then if you wanted blue lights, you had to have another 50 or 100 lights in blue. Right. And so it was all fixed. And once you got them up there and all aimed where you wanted them and gelled, that was the rig. So it was basically a very basic, crude approach to, to lighting. So we thought, well, if we could make each light change color, that would open up. Tremendous so possibilities. Did you find that, like, at that time, like, lighting rigs were kind of different? Like, there wasn't the same show? Like, you'd go to one show, and it'd be kind of a different light oh, show? Oh, every, every light was different. That was, you had to make, that was the, every the big show challenge. Was, every yeah. show was totally different. Everybody used the same bits, you know? Yeah. It was still parking. Same and marks and same but place. It, but, but the trussing and the way the lights were hung, and there was a lot of innovative ideas about how to 
make you know, the shows interesting and stuff. I mean, whenever I've seen Parkhand, and maybe it's because I've seen all the newer technology, but whenever I'd look at shows like that, there didn't really seem to be that kind of take-your-breath-away moment. Well, there wasn't any, because they were all soft-edged, washy-looking beams, and yeah, you know, they basically were just kind of changing different parts of the stage to different colors. Right. I mean, you did have some movement. I mean... You know, all by this time, everything that we had up there, sound and lighting, was being hung from the ceiling using chain motors and wire rope that was connected up in the beam to the ceiling. So we'd moved to where the rigging part of our operation was quite huge. And we had, you know, a typical show would have anywhere from 60 to 100 chain motors hung from the ceiling to pick up the lights and the sound and the sets yeah. and all that stuff. So um, there was a lot of innovation in, in trussing and putting the lights on various structures and moving the structures around to try to create an interesting show. But it was just a, it wasn't, the shows were good, but they just weren't, you know, electric or exciting like, like they are now, you know. Right. And so we started looking for a way to change color on a park hand, and we tried different different approaches. We had a couple of, engineers working on it and we tried a semaphore system like a flag where the each gel frame would be snapped in front of the park hand but that ended up being complicated and noisy uh, we tried an idea of, of using dyes three cells of of dyes you know different colors and you would push the cells together to change the thickness to create the a variable density of each color. And like dyes filled with water? Yeah. Right, like little packets of water? Yeah, but that that didn't work. It wasn't practical because, you know. Right. We had to break out the umbrellas, you know. <laughs> right. So uh, that, that wasn't a good idea. So um, after working on that for a couple of years on the gel changer, we also tried an air system where we put air cylinders and we uh, would put the gel frame on an, on a, on an air cylinder. We'd use air pressure to move it back and forth, you know, like a, a piston. Yeah. But that, that was extremely complicated and really noisy and expensive and heavy. Right. So um, I finally um, asked Jim Bornhorst, who was basically an electrical engineer, an audio guy, if he would take a look at this gel changer problem, and um, and that that's really the subject of the next yeah, of the I think next we're going to get into that because, in quite a bit uh, that, of detail. That's where it all started. Yeah, yeah, that really kind of uh, is what we know of stage lighting today, and yeah. where it's kind of evolved. Well, I'm excited yeah. to get into that part of the story, and um, I appreciate you being here and yeah, talking it. to me about this. This is exciting stuff, and always interesting to hear it um, kind of told in this way because it it really uh, it did have an impact, and I think a lot of people, uh, maybe we'll put some pictures up on our, our, our website yeah. where we can kind of show some of these things that we're talking about. Sounds and, good. And uh, people can go to the mix.500rockets.io and uh, grab some of those pictures if they want to take a look. Uh, anyway, thanks so much, and we will come back for episode four in another week, and uh, we will dive into how the automated light was created. Super exciting. <laughs>